Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet award-winning director and cinematographer Deanne Whalen. Her new film is 500 Days in the Wild, the story of her journey of traversing the entire 24,000 kilometers of the longest trail in the world, Canada's land and water trails from sea to sea to sea. We'll also meet Liz Locke. Now, if you like cocktails and classic movies like I do, you'll want to check out her site, cinemasips.com, and then check out her debut novel, Follow the Sun, a portrait of the 1960s international jet-set era through the eyes of an aspiring singer-songwriter. That's a little bit later. First, though, let's get to know Alex Malari Jr. The actor is best known for his performances in the television series Dark Matter and Ginny and Georgina, but you've seen him in movies like The Adam Project with Ryan Reynolds and Shotgun Wedding with Jennifer Lopez. Today, we'll talk about his latest Netflix movie, Code 8, Part 2. The film centers on the 4% of people living in a place called Lincoln City who have superpowers. It follows the journey of a teenage girl fighting to get justice for her slain brother at the hands of a corrupt police officer or two. After becoming a witness to the cover-up, she becomes a target and enlists the help of an ex-con and his former partner in crime. Into that mix comes Alex as the villainous Sergeant King Kingston. Alex Malari Jr. joined me via Zoom to talk about working with Reynolds, Lopez, and why the message of Code 8 Part 2 is so timely. You dreamed of a career in the MBA. You studied criminology at the University of Toronto. When did acting come into the picture? Because those are some very different things. Acting came into play after basketball didn't work out. I went to U of T. I maybe went for a semester and a bit. And then on the way home, I was either listening to Flow 93.5 or Z103.5, Flow 93.5 or Z103.5. And a commercial had come on uh, talking about if you want to be an actor. I don't recommend anyone call the number that gets advertised, <laughs> but I called the number. And uh, long story short, I called the number and I got lost along the way and eventually found my way. And now I'm still trying to figure things out. When you were uh, quite young, you drew a picture and it was the Hollywood sign. It's you as kind of a villain with a bag of money and you're pointing a gun at the cops. So maybe it sort of pointed the direction to playing a villain in Code 8. Maybe. I don't know. I feel like I've I've only ever been a villain at this point. <laughs> trying to work my way into, into the hero side of things. But yeah, it comes to show you, you got to be careful what you put out there. That's what, even when you're in grade two. Yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Malcolm McDowell a little while ago, and he said yeah. to be an actor, uh, you have to learn to lead a life of rejection often because you're going to get told no more than you're going to get told yes. How do you take the re the occasional rejection or, or did you have to develop a thick skin? You know what? As I got older, I realized thick skin wasn't the answer. It's, really? it's having a strong heart. Um, and strong emotional support and then having a strong, having a strong support system. And, and mm. um, it isn't, and I, I've reframed it from rejection to a redirection, or it's just being able to tackle those moments with understanding that you're just not the one for that part, because there's right. so many parts to this machine that we call film TV 
that a lot of people don't get to see. Um, for example, you know, you might be right for the casting director. Casting director sends it off to the producers and directors in the network. They might not agree to it. You know what I mean? And then they got to consider, okay, well, how do you fit amongst the people that have already been cast or who they're considering casting? And so being understanding of that and, um, and maturing more as a person, I don't really see it as rejection anymore. And I'm okay with it. It's so much easier to have that mind frame, do these auditions and let it go. Of course, mm -hmm. they're the ones that you really want and you, you really want to tackle them. Um, but it doesn't affect me how it used to anymore. Do you ever walk into the, the casting office and you look around the uh, room and you're like, everyone looks exactly like me. What do I, what do <laughs> I have to do to stand out? No, uh, I haven't walked into a casting room since, uh, what's that COVID thing that we had, the pan mm. pandemic? Uh, I'll look it up on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Do yeah, that. Yeah. I have no idea what that was. Uh, <laughs> so I haven't been in a cast room for that long, but prior to that, no, uh, because the things that I would typically go out for were ethnically ambiguous. Uh -huh. So there'd be a right. mishmash of people. I think I've had maybe two or three auditions where they asked for a Filipino person, and those ones I wasn't fortunate enough to book. I've auditioned for nothing. I mean, two things <laughs> years ago and uh, both times it was at a casting office and I walked in, everyone's tall. They've got slick back hair. They're wearing a suit like me. I'm like, uh, what, what am I supposed to do here oh, to make my, myself different? Walk into my hands that. or something. <laughs> you have way too much swagger to, to be the same as anyone else. Get out of here. I don't believe that for a second. Tell me about working yeah. with Jennifer Lopez. She is incredible she's just a perfectionist and she's got her whole team with her and everything but at the end of the day she is accountable for everything so if she's mm -hmm. missing a line or she's not hitting a line you see that that hustler that she actually is yeah because she wants to get it right all the time she wants to produce something amazing you're listening to alex malari jr on the richard Krause show his new film code eight part two is now on netflix that's something i took from her while working with her um is is to never lose that that grind you know whatever got you there keep it and i uh, just keep working hard it was incredible to watch her work I think another one of your co-stars, Ryan Reynolds, is probably cut from that same kind of cloth as well. Yeah, yeah Ryan is a whole other beast as well. He is <laughs> nonstop. So the moment they call action, he's right there with you, um, coming up with ideas along the way. And they're Ryan and Sean are very collaborative, and it's wicked to watch them work. Um, I could talk about them all day. Ryan, when he, once they call cut, he's off his... He's right to his phone or the screen, but typically to his phone, cutting some sort of deal, be it from maximum effort or aviation gin or Rex, yeah. call it whatever it is. He's on it and he does not stop working. I don't know where that man finds time. I feel like he has more than 24 hours in a day. Sergeant Kingston is a rising star in downtown Lincoln. I'm here because I'm one of you. We all want a safe neighborhood to grow up, but we've listened, we've made changes. If you just put your hands up, 
we won't hurt you. You are uh, one of the people that were in the original film. I love the story of the first film. It starts off as a short that was used as proof of concept. Then they crowdfunded this movie that became exceptionally popular. So tell me a little bit about uh, that production moving into this one and the differences between the two. Budget mm. being the main, main yeah. difference. But as far as the team, uh, Jeff Chan, uh, Chris Parry, the Amels, it was always them they were always a core and they they believed in it from the jump and they've carried it they've seen it through the whole way so the environment didn't change you mm -hmm. know the collaborative um environment was always there so um just the budget just the yeah. budget and then the toys we got to play with and the toys are cool right although oh, yeah. the director jeff chan says that uh, the CGI and whatever computer, you know, trickery they use to create knives flying through the air and that kind of thing, won't give yeah. anything away, um, uh, always has to take a backseat to the human element mm -hmm. of the story. This is speculative fiction. It's a science fiction movie, uh, but it's really a universal story about uh, people not being accepted just simply because of who they are. And I think that's a really interesting way of kind of opening that door for further discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, they do a wonderful job bringing that forth. And I'm glad I got to play King um, because we got to tackle some, some issues uh, while being able to, uh, while being able to create dialogue that's certainly necessary in, especially in today's time with, uh, with regards to AI and, and mm -hmm. systemic issues. The film, uh, I think, has that appeal that you can really kind of dig down, look for the subtext if you want, or you can just sit back and enjoy, you know, a, a great story well told. Is there something that you hope people take away from the uh, the film? I just want them to be entertained. Yeah. You know, I, it's something that I've always wanted to make sure that when I'm on something, I want to be on something that, is valuable to people, be it, you know, just a good time with the family or something that they can really ponder about and have some in-depth conversations with some friends or peers or whatever. You talk about playing villains uh, frequently in the, in the films that you've been in. Tell me a little bit about uh, what career arc you see for yourself. I don't know what it looks like. I'm still yeah. trying to figure that part out right now. The villains are fun to play. They know what they want. You know right. what I mean? I would like to get to that place where I can challenge myself and and hold a film or, or a project while trying to figure things out along the way. Because that's something about, about the hero. They, they almost don't know what they want. <laughs> or they think they want something, but they're not completely sure or they don't know how to get, get that. Right. And I think that's that sort of complexity and challenge as a person is so relatable to everyone. And, and it's would be fun to try to tackle on screen, but I would love to get into action comedy or comedy, but I do love the sci-fi world at the same. I want to do it all, Richard. Yeah. Send it all my way. There's already talk that I saw online that there might be a part three. Have you heard any rumors really? of this? Here's what Jeff has said. Mm -hmm. King is somewhere out there and he's not dead, Alex. <laughs> so that's all I've heard as far as a part three. Listen, if anyone deserves a part three and just like the, Thanos type of budget that that any director can uh, be offered. It's it is Jeff Chan. Jeff Chan is incredible to work with, and Chris Parry as well. They, I feel like they just 
developed some incredible um, and very unique stories. Yeah, I, I hope they get everything that they want and then some. You've been listening to Alex Malari Jr. on The Richard Krause Show. His film, Code 8 Part 2, is on Netflix right now. Let's meet Liz Locke, the founder of Cinemasips.com, a weekly guide to cocktail and movie pairings. She is also the author of Follow the Sun, a new novel now available wherever fine books are sold that is set amid the glamorous international jet set of the 1960s. It follows socialite Caroline Kimball, a woman of generational wealth who wants to break free and become a singer and songwriter. Liz Locke joined me via Zoom from Austin, Texas. This book is set at a very specific time. So tell me what it is about the pop culture of the 1960s and beyond that really has grabbed you. Um, yeah, absolutely. It is my favorite era. Um, I think as a kid, um, these were the shows, the television shows and the movies of the 1960s were what were shown, um, you know, in the early 90s. So I grew up on, you know, the Brady Bunch, Bewitched, mm -hmm. I Dream of Jeannie, um, and it really got me hooked on the era. Um, and then my dad and I always used to listen to the, you know, the oldies station in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And uh, yeah, like the m music of that time period, that's always what I was into. The beat, I was the kid who loved the Beatles, Simon and Garfunkel, you know, I would wait all day for Mrs. Robinson to come on the radio, <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, so I never really grew out of that. I think I've always loved that era. Um, and then when I found uh, out about the photographer Slim Aarons had shot a lot of this era um, through his work for different publications of the time period, like Town and Country and Holiday, he photographed the 1960s jet set. And I saw these photographs and I was hooked. Um, it just spoke to everything that I've always loved pop culture wise. <laughs> well, there's a real glamour to it that yes. is certainly missing now from, uh, from <laughs> that era and from that, from that, I, I don't know if we even have a jet set anymore, but I guess it'd be influencers now, probably. Right. I don't know, right. <laughs> but there's a real glamour to this. And so tell me, uh, I mean, you look at the photographs, you see the films and the television shows and it's the clothes and everything mm -hmm. about it that just seems to add up uh, to something that not only entertains the eye, but really makes you think a little bit as well. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, mid-century modern design is still so popular because people took the time to get the details right, whether it be clothes or um, architecture, um, just general fabrics, interior design, um, you know, it, I think it speaks to like this attention to detail and the tailoring of that time period that I just don't see in a lot of modern things. Um, and I think that that's a lot, a big reason why we still gravitate toward it. And I think there's also, there was some optimism toward the future back then. Um, you know, the, certainly the style was, this is what we thought the future would look like. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It did not turn out that way. But, you know, I think um, I, you know, I still kind of tend to surround myself with that stuff with a lot of the mid-century modern trappings. <laughs> so. so the book is very rich in detail uh, mm -hmm. about uh, the, the, the style of the time. What sort of research? I mean, you've been doing it your entire life, but you must have done some very specific research uh, for the book. 
Yes. Um, well, like I said, it all kind of started with uh, Slimeran's photography. I was in a little bookstore in Amsterdam and found uh, the book Poolside by Slimeran's. And it was just these gorgeous, um, you know, tech, like Kodachrome photos of beautiful people in beautiful places lounging poolside. Um, and I started to read a bit on the introduction to that book, and I was just really hooked on the concept of that world. Um, you know, these socialites and celebrities, film stars, royalty, um, who would travel the world. You're listening to Liz Locke on The Richard Krauss Show. Her novel, Follow the Sun, is available now wherever you buy fine books. And have this really luxurious lifestyle, but then it also makes you wonder what was going on behind the scenes, you know, behind the pretty photos. So I think a lot of my research delved into that. Um, I found a great book uh, called The International Nomads, and it was kind of the so it was kind of a just a social register of the time that told you, you know, these are these are the do's and don'ts if you want to fit in with the jet set. Um, and certainly there's been a lot of other great publications on the jet set of the time period. I found a great uh, autobiography by Elizabeth Taylor's photographer, her personal photographer, who traveled with her and Richard Burton. Um, throughout that era. And it was just fascinating. And a lot of the places that, you know, he followed her do show up in Follow the Sun as well. Um, so yeah, I think, and I'll, actually, movies were another big research item for me. Um, a lot of the document, like documentaries like Monterey Pop covering the music of that time period. Um, you know, there's just, there's a lot of really great, um, you know, films out there that capture that era. Well, let's talk about Carolyn. And she is someone of generational wealth. She is someone uh, who is probably never wanted for anything, except that she wants something that's different than her family wants. She is uh, a musician, wants to uh, be a singer and a songwriter, which never going to happen if her parents had anything to say about it. So tell me a little bit about creating her. And she kind of struck me, as like maybe a less tragic Edie Sedgwick kind of character or something absolutely. like that? Absolutely. It's so funny you mentioned that because it was absolutely, um, I read Edie's, bio, one of one of the biographies on Edie, um, and she also came from a very privileged mm -hmm. background um, and, you know, had a lot of family troubles, um, you know, by the time she met up with Warhol. But um, yeah, she was absolutely an inspiration. I would say also uh, Graham Parsons. Um, he came yeah. from a very privileged background as well. Again, Did he? I didn't know that. Yeah, I think he like dropped out of Harvard or something to go out to California. Um, again, a very trouble. I think his father also uh, committed suicide, like Carolyn's father in the book. It's interesting once you dive into some of these stories um, to see that, you know, people come from all different walks of life when they get into the music industry um, and you just never know. <laughs> So I, but, you know, I was trying to think of something um, for Caroline to, like, what does she want? I think that when we respond to fiction, we're responding to this, you know, what, first of all, what does the character want and can we relate to that? And I think that, you know, many of us artists, like, we have this big want and 
certainly like I have very supportive parents in the way that she did not, but that's why we keep reading is to see how she's going to overcome that, uh, that family situation. Are you working on another one right now? Are you currently? Uh, I am. Something? I got the idea for this probably a decade ago and I had been working on it and then, you know, finding an agent and I left an agent and found another one during that time. And then it had to go out, you know, on submission to publishers. Um, and then, you know, during all of this, you know, you don't want to just be sitting around waiting on this book that may or may not mm -hmm. sell. So you start something else. Um, so the process took so long that I actually wrote another book in the process. <laughs> and I had just sent it to my agent like two days before we got the call from Random House Canada and she emailed me and she's like, you're not going to believe this because I really thought, you know, Follow the Sun was just going to be this book that I loved that unfortunately just wound up in my desk drawer. Um, yeah. But happily, that's not the case. That was Liz Locke on the Richard Krause Show. She is the founder of Cinemasips.com, which is a really cool weekly guide to cocktail and movie pairings. So if you'd like to have a drink and sit down with a classic movie, Check it out, cinemasips.com. She is also the author of Follow the Sun and does a really good job of painting a portrait of the jet set era of the 1960s and placing some really interesting characters in the middle of that situation. Let's get to know Deanne Whalen. She's an award-winning director and cinematographer known for making films in extreme locations. She's made movies in the Canadian Arctic and Mount Everest's base camp, but her latest, 500 Days in the Wild tested her in ways she had never experienced before. She filmed herself traversing the entire 24,000 kilometers of the longest trail in the world, Canada's land and water trails from sea to sea to sea. The epic journey of discovery, of hiking, biking, paddling, snowshoeing, and skiing across the country provided challenges over the six years it took her to complete the journey, but at the end, she emerged a bit wiser and certainly more hopeful about the state of the world. Dionne Whalen joined me via Zoom from Berlin. Tell me uh, a little bit about the genesis of this whole thing. In the movie, you say the world had stopped making sense, so I wonder if putting your life behind you in that sense, to embark on this journey. Did it help you find inspiration and answers? Absolutely, Richard. Uh, the world, you know, I mean, before I left, you watch the news and I'm just like, oh my God, the whole world's full of sociopaths. Like, what the hell is going on? It's just like, we're just, clock is moving closer and closer to doomsday, you know? It's like, this is nuts. And we all talk about certain issues that we collectively know we need to address, but we're not addressing it just felt really hopeless to me, frankly. Um, so, yeah, I definitely needed some time out, but not just culturally. I mean, even in my own personal life, my, my marriage had ended. So it was definitely time to take a break and reconnect to myself. But I'm also an extreme filmmaker. I'm not usually the one doing the extremism. I'm usually very, you know, happy to be behind just documenting it like I did on Mount Everest and up in the high Arctic. And you know, longest trail in the world had a certain amount of sex appeal. It's opening up in our country. I thought, hey, you know, let's just, this is meeting all the boxes. <laughs> tick, 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 tick. <laughs> um, and then after all those years out there, Richard, you know, like 
and not watching the news because it really was irrelevant. And I not to take away from the importance of informing people, we do need to know what's going on. That is an ancient thing. We need to know what are the dangers around us? What the heck is happening? But we also need to remember that like, most of the people on this planet are incredibly kind. And I'd forgotten that too. I'd lost my trust. I'm, you know, I'd lost that trust of people. So what this journey did was broke that down because all I met for six years, Richard, were kind people. We really see that in a couple of examples or a few examples in the film. Uh, but when I think of the two hunters, you're right. lost and you've lost five tenths oh. and it's a terrible situation. And you were afraid at first. I was. I was afraid of them because as a woman, we are conditioned to be afraid of men in the dark when we are alone. I mean, like, you know, you're a teenager, you're walking from your car, you got to go down the block. We got our keys between our fingers. It's just part of the conditioning and it's it's too bad, but it is a part of our conditioning. And um, so I'm out, I'm in the dark, I'm already afraid of fear. I'm in a crazy storm. And exactly when I saw these two lights coming out of the darkness, you think I should have been, yay, you know? And instead I was like, oh my God, I'm so vulnerable right now. I'm terrified. But uh, boy, was I wrong. And I didn't want to trust them, but I had to. And they were the sweetest, kindest men I've ever met. I'm going to be seeing them next week in Halifax. We're so I'm thrilled. Um, and, you know, they fed me deer meat. They gave me a cigar. And, you know, Richard, <laughs> like so much of today's politics is that it's like where you are on the political spectrum determines who we get to hang out with. And, you know, it was irrelevant. And um, because everybody showed me kindness, that's the part of this film that's so strong is it doesn't really matter where you are there because it's irrelevant, because it isn't about what makes us different. It's about what we share. And when you're out in the bush and you meet two hunters, you're already sharing something. You like to be in the bush. And turns out I like cigars. You know, I didn't know that, but I actually do. I really enjoyed. And um, yeah, what, what sweethearts. And 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 that really um, was the first part of the transformation, because as I cycled away and left them behind, I was like, I could see that in myself. I, I really had to be honest with myself and say, man, you know, you you thought those guys were dangerous and those guys just saved your life. And uh, there's a lesson in there about fear and about not just looking through the lens of fear and um and that stayed with me. You're listening to Deanne Whalen on The Richard Krause Show. Her film, 500 Days in the Wild, is playing in select theaters before its wide release. Check your local listings. Interesting that it happened at the beginning or near the beginning of the journey because it probably flavored the rest of the journey yeah. as it went on. Absolutely. I mean, in, in so many ways. I mean, all my exchanges in Indigenous communities, in the woods, with the hunters, it really didn't matter where I was in this country. I was met with kindness. And, you know, again, that goes against this idea of being a woman who's vulnerable and alone. You know, usually that just screams danger. Um, and, you know, fear needs to be fed. It's like a plant in your garden. If you keep feeding it, it keeps growing. And what happened in this journey was that fear that I'd been feeding, like we're all feeding, well, it, none, nothing was happening to feed it. To, to feed it, not with people anyway. There was lots of fear <laughs> of all kinds of different things, but not from people. Like every person I met, even if I didn't trust them, turned out to be a really kind person who helped me. Um, this, In fact, the whole journey is really, it's the currency of 500 days in the wild is human kindness. The film 
uh, sees you alone a great deal of the time, but you have people that stop in the two hunters. We just mentioned there's a a few people that make the trip with you, uh, at different points, but for a, a lot of it, you are alone. So tell me the difference then. And you talk about this in the film between solitude and loneliness, because they, they seem synonymous, but they're not. Or not. No. Loneliness is when we are yearning for some kind of connection. Um, solitude is when you're taking that time out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I realized out there was, you know, I was never alone. And it, and it, it was interesting, too, because I realized it took me a few years until I learned it. But humans are just 0.001% of all life on Earth. Right. Isn't that wild? I had no idea. And when you go out into nature, guess what? You're connecting to the other 99.9%. You're having conversations with frogs. You're talking to, you know, you're hanging out with butterflies and dragonflies. And then as the years go by, it becomes moose and it becomes bears and it becomes all these other creatures that buffalo that, you know, I'm both the observer and the observed, right? I'm having these moments, these profound moments with these animals that can feel that I am not a threat. You know what I mean? Like, I really believe there's something about resonance in all of this that I, I'm not, you know, I don't have all the degrees behind me, but what we put out is what we attract in. Let's just put it that way. You talk yeah. about making a connection when you travel. And that's what I think we're edging towards here uh, yeah. is connecting not only with the the other 99% of life on earth, the frogs and the bears and all that stuff, but with everything that you come in contact with. Tell me a little bit about that. It is uh, so amazing, really, because it was all about capital A alone when I left, right? I just want to be alone. And then, of course, no, I need help from, you know, my shoes fall apart, you know, all kinds of, you know, losing tents, you know, I failed camping school in the first two months so badly. I was just like, you or should not be out here. Like you are so bad at this, but you know, day after day, got a little bit better and a little bit better. And of course, yeah, human kindness, right? The very thing that I wanted to get away from was the very thing that I needed, which was human connection. And so for a film that sets out to be all about being alone, it's actually all about connection. It's about connection to self, connection to to water, connection to land, connection to every other living thing, connection to people, community, connection. It it became all about that. Absolutely. So um, and isn't that the truth, though? Right. Like we. I think one of the profoundest lessons is that moment when I'm out there, Richard, and it's like I'm looking at all these trees and I suddenly realize, wow, on the surface, each tree looks like it's standing alone. (laughs) But beneath the surface, they're all connected by their roots. And so, too, are we. We all feel like we're alone, but we're not. In fact, we're all on this planet floating around a galaxy full of dead planets. We actually share quite a bit, <laughs> like a home. <laughs> so, yeah, that's really what came through. And just, uh, you know, we all have the capacity to be healers when you think about it, because it's just being kind to one another. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Instead of focusing on what makes us different, let's just try to find and remember what makes us the same, you know. And uh, I got reminded about that. A lot out there. Now that you're back into the hurly burly of real <laughs> life, <laughs> and you're you're in Berlin right now, is that I right? I am in 
Berlin, yeah, yeah, the Berlinale is happening, the big uh, big film market here, and uh, we're doing some private screenings. Yeah, so you're around the world. You're having a much different life than you did for the 500 Days in the Wild. Uh, is it easy for you to uh, keep these lessons top of mind, or does just the hustle and bustle of everyday life start to cloud that learning that you did on the road? For sure, the hustle and bustle sometimes clouds that over. Uh, it's hard to stay with anything. But the difference is I know it's there. Mm. I have a strong awareness. And I like everything that you do builds muscle. Let's just say it that way, right? So it's there. So I can catch myself in a moment of self-reflection going, oh, oh, yeah, wait a minute. You know, you're getting caught up in this again. Mm. You need to take a step back. I always say it's just like it's like the mouse, right? And when you get so occupied with what's just right in front of your face, you're like a mouse. All you can see is what's in front of your face. <laughs> but really, when you get out there and you get away from everything, it's like being the eagle. Suddenly you can see far behind you and far ahead of you. You strip away all those labels, you strip away everything, and all you're left with is yourself. <laughs> and uh, like I said, solitude reveals what a mirror cannot. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about preparing for the physical demands of this shoot. How do you physically, I guess, and also mentally prepare? Well, physically, let's just say you're familiar with the term on the job training. <laughs> it was very much on the job training. I was just like, oh, you know, but you get, it's just like, you know, every day, every day you get stronger. Uh, mentally, I did prepare. Mentally, I left my home and went uh, back east and went to a small village where my mother was born, Acadian a village. And I uh, went back to the old farmhouse where she had been born and where my, my ancestors on her side of the family are from. Very small, very remote nobody there 50 people and I started getting used to long periods of time being alone more like just really uh did some learning how to do just like 10 minute meditations just like calm the you know and just be comfortable with that because I didn't want to deal with that out there I wanted mm -hmm. to like feel co like confident that I would be okay that way and not to say like in my, that little village I didn't have exchanges with people but I was able to spend a lot more time in a much where people, there's just a lot fewer people. And uh, so I prepared psychologically that way a lot. And every journey, every film I've ever made, every camping trip I've ever done, I did Outward Bound in my teenage years, all of those things led me to this place and led me to the ability to do it. You know, um, Everest was 40 days. The high Arctic was just under a month. They were, you know, those prepared me for this. This is six years. So it's like much longer, but they prepared me for it. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. it's muscle. Like you have to, you have to believe if you don't believe you can do it, there's a good chance that you won't be able to. Right. You're listening to Deanne Whalen on the Richard Krause show. Her film 500 days in the wild is playing in select theaters before it's wide release. Check your local listings. Uh, there's an old saying, it's like thought becomes deed and deed becomes destiny. And this is very much a case of, you know, I believed, I believed even if people around me said, you're nuts, that can't happen. I'm like, I got no, there's no sense of failure in trying, even if I just spend a year out there or whatever it will be. But I also know that once I start something, I'm very stubborn and I won't quit and um, might be a fault and it might be a strength depending on the day of the week. But in the case of completing this journey, I would say it's a strength. I knew that the only way I'd be coming off that trail is if I died. I knew it or got really hurt. Obviously, I'd have to stop. But uh, other than that, I, you know, I, I, 
let's go. <laughs> Keep moving forward. You must have had hundreds of hours of film. <laughs> yeah. How how much? 800 you- hours of film, Richard. Wow. And so how do you even begin to wade through that amount of footage and I mean, was your first cut a hundred hours long, and then you you, <laughs> you work backwards from there? That's a very good question. No, we um, so you know, although the film was shot independently, um, when we when we finished, in order to go into post production, we um, you know, start working with Elevation Pictures, and and the deal came through with Paramount Pictures, and then that triggered Telefilm funding. So all of a sudden, it's a very different. Um, you know, project, right? And I'm working with uh, two extremely good producer, executive producer, Betsy Carson, Christine Habler, you know, veterans really of the industry. And um, it's it's their reputation that facilitated uh, these relationships. So it becomes very much a collective collaboration uh, from in the business side, but also in the creative side, we knew we would have to, I wanted to see every minute. There was some struggle at the beginning. They're like, well, let's write a script and then we'll cut to it. I'm like, no, I am watching every minute and we're going this way and everyone's like oh my god anyway we got there was five editors so we had a senior editor tanya marignac who really like co-wrote it with me and and um who we i worked with every day like 12 hours a day i mean she threw these the people i worked with gave this project everything seven days a week 12 hours a day this wasn't a job for them it was a job for them but they, I think the greatest gift was how impassioned they became and how um, it became theirs too, you know, and they really cared about it. Everybody really cared about it. Uh, so we had five guys that were editing, all amazing editors in their own right, who helped us with assembly. So I'd be like, here you go. Here's a hundred hours. Let's bring it down. Right. And then we kind of collated from there. So it was really, you know, the work of a lot of people. And uh, I always say, always look behind behind the shine, Richard, like right behind you somewhere, there's a techie yep. and there's other people that are helping you shine, right? That make you sound good on the radio. Yep. And, and and I'm the same way. We all are. Look behind the shine, man. It takes a lot of people. It took a, lots of people to make this happen. What I'm grateful for was that they cared about this project as much as I do. And it became ours, not mine. It's very much ours. <laughs> and when you look back at it now, does it take you right back to the moment or did you spend so much time working on it that you're seeing it in a different way now? Oh, it's a very interesting question. Well, you know, Richard, we just really finished the film like two days before the Whistler Film Festival. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so if it was a painting, the paint's still wet, Richard, yeah. but it's not, you know, it's still early days for me. I haven't had that distance from it, but there are still moments in that film that make me cry. You know, certainly I don't want to give anything away for the people that haven't seen it, but you've seen it. So yeah. when I land at the end that I still see that and I break open every time I see it. That was Deanne Whalen on the Richard Krause show. Her film 500 Days in the Wild is playing in select theaters before its wide release. Check your local listings. Big thanks to Deanne for stopping by. Also, a big thanks to Liz Locke. Her novel, Follow the Sun, is available wherever you buy fine books or sold. And a big thanks to Alex Malari Jr. Find his movie, Code 8 Part 2, on Netflix. Of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon. (laughs) 